Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be reading again the opening uh, four verses, verses 1 through 4. Uh, we mentioned that this was a, uh, it's one long sentence in the Greek, the original text, verses 1 through 4. So it's one main thought, but we're actually just still introducing this book. Um, we've considered last week the authorship of the book, and I will be all over the place in what I call this, a book, a letter, a sermon, uh, so just kind of get used to that, but, and that was one of the things we talked about last week. We'll talk about the audience this week, so you'll have uh, just the second point of your outline there if you're following along. But maybe some of you, this is just like, why can't we just get into the text? <laughs> Why, why do you have to give us an introduction? Uh, and I know there, were, there was a, several classes in seminary where they're Bible classes, and you spend, it's, it felt like a quarter to a third of the time in introductory material, just getting a, an, a sense of the context of the, both the author as well as the original audience. And it was frustrating at times because I just wanted to, I wanted to get right into the meat of the text. So why does this matter? Well, I think taking the time to, to ground us in the original context is quite important in how we interpret it. So you've probably heard the word hermeneutics. That's just our interpretation of a text. That doesn't mean, it, that's not some, a word that only applies to religious texts, although that's historically the majority of how hermeneutics has been taught and understood. It's, you know, what are the methods that we do to can to pull out or draw out the intent of the text, whether it's from the author's intent, the intent that it was to, to have upon the audience. Um, and so it's important that we, that we consider these things. One of the approaches, the method that I think is the most appropriate as we read God's word is a historical grammatical um, method, and that's treating the Bible as God's word, recognizing that this is God's word and that it understanding that it conveys an objective truth, right? An objective truth about reality, uh, about God's will for our lives. So it seeks to understand, this approach seeks to understand the original intent of the author. It suggests that there is an intent of the author and, and what that is, is going to depend on the kind of genre that he's writing in, uh, the, the, the people he's writing to, his own context, the authority that he has in which he's writing. So the, the historical grammatical approach is important, and it's sort of set, a, set alongside a historical critical approach. And the critical, oftentimes referred to as higher criticism, uh, this is going to be the academic world. The, this is largely, if you take a Bible class in just about any university, they're going to be influenced by this higher critical approach, which also is looking for the original intent of the author. That's the only similarity, though, because they would say that this is not God's word. They treat the Bible as any other text, right? It's just an, another ancient text written by men, and they, they had their own purpose behind it. So anything that's supernatural, anything that's miraculous that's taking place, any description of divine activity is understood 
from the perspective of a human making this up, right? And, and what was his intent in suggesting these things? Why was this important, right? Was he trying to protect a, a group of people from another culture? Was he just trying to um, raise up his own culture above others to say that they, they've received a word directly from God, right? So they're understanding it from a critical view. That's, that's their, their lens in which they read scripture. It's to critique it from a human perspective and to not take any of it as the word of God. So, but here's the similarity between both of those approaches. They both understand the author to have an objective point, to have an objective truth that, that he is getting at, right? He has a purpose that is, that is uh, grounded in some goal and in reality, right? There's another approach, though. And there's other methods, but the only other one I want to mention this morning is this reader response approach. This is really growing. Uh, it's a, a post developed from a postmodern, I mean, a, yeah, postmodern philosophy of thinking about reality. They would say that the, the Bible conveys a subjective truth to be interpreted uniquely by each individual reader. So, you, they might try this method with other methods, but the idea is you don't worry about so much about who wrote it. You don't worry about the original context of the audience. You simply look at your own situation and you read the text as if it were relating to you personally, right? So this is where you get some of the language of like, well, what does this text mean to you? How, what do you feel about this? If you haven't heard that before in a Bible study, you probably haven't been to a more broadly evangelical Bible study because that's the kind of language that's thrown about. In fact, if you ask the same question, if you ask, what does this text mean? As opposed to, what does this mean to you? The answer is almost identical. What does it mean is what it means to me. I don't want to put my, my truth on you. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. This, that's a postmodern idea that, that takes reality and flips it on its head and says we're all just in our own little matrix right we, we all make reality whatever we want it to be that is that is not consistent with how we should read god's word and so knowing something about the author knowing something about the context to which he's writing i think is important to ground what we're reading in history to, to acknowledge that words mean something and that this is god's revelation to us and we need to understand it in such a way that's not completely foreign to the original audience. If we are reading it in such a radically different way, then it's possible that we're the ones that are misinterpreting it, right? That we've got it wrong. Imagine our church receiving a letter from Governor Newsom. So, so we, get a, we get a letter from the governor. Um, before we even open it, before we even start reading, there's going to be some assumptions about how we're going to receive and interpret this letter, right? No matter what it says, we've got some, some groundwork that's already laid just from our own context. So the audience is important to understand, right, how, how we read the text. It's safe to say we, we'd have a negative opinion about the text before we even opened it. However, 
you have to also prioritize the text itself. I mean, maybe he's writing to just encourage us as faithful, a faithful community of Christians, right, in, in the Tower District of Fresno, California, which is a place he loves. Whatever the text actually says we, it is clouded by the context of the audience and the position of the author, where he's writing from, who he's writing to, right? These are critical. And, and, and yet, we, we want to acknowledge that, especially in a text that, is, that was written, you know, two, almost 2,000 years ago, in a completely different context from our own, we need to prioritize what the text actually says. And so when we're thinking about the audience, we're not just coming at it from, you know, like, well, all extra biblical material. We can consider those things, but, but we need to think about it. What does is, what is the letter to the Hebrews actually say about the audience? What does it tell us about the author? Right? So from our own research, we want to prioritize the word of God in our understanding of how to interpret it. And that's going to tell us a lot. We, we don't read apocalyptic literature in the same way that we read historical narrative passages. They convey different, they convey truth, objective truth in a different, in different ways, different manners. They use different grammatical tools to help make sense of that truth. And so when you're reading about visions and dreams, it's different than someone who is talking about um, promises of the old covenant and how it, inter- how it should be interpreted by believers in that context. So, last week we focused on the author and his message of Christ's supremacy over all things. This is the, the title of this sermon series is gonna be Jesus is greater than, and it's dot, 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 right? It's Jesus is greater than everything. Um, he's supreme over all things. And we concluded that the text is inspired, that it was written by an inspired author. That was your first point, an inspired author. We cannot go too far beyond that, although we mentioned several, several um, proposals that have been placed, uh, put out for the author, one being Paul, the primary one throughout history was Paul. Uh, but there's a, a lot of significant challenges to that. You'll have to go back to last week's sermon to understand that. But we concluded that it was written by an inspired author. I lean toward more either Apollos or Barnabas. I like those ideas, but to be honest, those make sense to me probably because we don't have as much to compare them with. We don't have a whole lot of literature from Apollos to compare with the book of Hebrews. Uh, Barnabas is minimal. Um, And so what we do know is that Acts says that Apollos was an eloquent man and that he was an Alexandrian Jew. And so a lot of his context was similar to the way that author is describing himself in this letter. And so I think that was a, a good well-educated guess by Martin Luther. But beyond being a guess, I, I, I don't have that confidence to say. And Barnabas, in, in a similar fashion, fits a lot of the context of Hebrews. We also spent time talking about the fact that this is a really a hybrid of a sermon and a letter. Right? It doesn't open like a letter, doesn't open with a greeting, a salutation, doesn't talk about who the author is and who the audience is. That's usually what, why we spend a few times talking about these things in other letters, because it's right there in the text. But in this case, there isn't that in the text, and so we're supplying it by reading deeper into it. It concludes much like a letter. So if you read the latter part, we'll look at that later in uh, this sermon, but there's information there that sounds and reads like a letter. So it seems to be that maybe if you could put, put it in a scenario, 
it sounds like this author is someone who had familiarity with preaching in, uh, in, in various churches, in house churches, in uh, Christian churches, and probably prior to that in synagogue, uh, teaching about Christ. And he preached these sermons, and had he had the opportunity to be there with them, he would have preached this to them. But in lieu of him going there in person, he's going to write it out for them, and then he wraps it up and concludes it with some personal notes, as a letter would include. And so this morning we're going to look at, just focus on the audience, and then we'll get into the text of verses 1 and 2 next week. But I mentioned this last time that Hebrews addresses Christians who are tempted to accommodate their faith in order to relieve cultural pressure. Hebrews addresses Christians who were tempted to accommodate their faith, to adopt uh, changes into their practice of worship into their, uh, the practice of their faith in order to relieve the pressure that they were experiencing from the culture. That, that seems to be clear. That's a, that's a, a short, brief summary of, of the audience and their context um, as they're receiving this letter. But before we read the opening first four verses, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what we can glean from it. Lord, we thank you that even though it was written to a particular people at a particular time in their own particular context, we know that so much of what they were going through relates to us. And so the, the same encouragement, the same exhortation that was given to them applies to us in our context. So we want to take this seriously and to, to read it rightly and then to apply it to our lives in a way that, that supports our worship. It supports our understanding of, of you so that we can come before you and worship you in spirit and in truth. That we can know more about the God whom we've given our lives to. Lord, the, the God who's revealed himself to us and taken us off of a, a path that was self-serving and brought us into a community of saints where we might serve, where we might learn to give and support others. And so, Lord, we pray that this letter would be a means of equipping us for that work. Increase our love for you and for one another and for our neighbors as we read through this text. And may you be glorified in all of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the first point I mentioned was an inspired author. The second point that we'll look at today is an intimidated audience. You could say a lot of things about this audience, but one thing that's clear is that they were intimidated. Intimidated by 
the persecution that they were receiving. And if I could summarize it in, in one sentence, I would write it like this. And some of this is based on educated guess, but it's, it's a context that I think helps us as we read through this book to make sense of it. Hebrews was written to a small house church in Rome made up of mostly Jewish Christians, if not exclusively Jewish Christians, who were suffering under Nero's persecution. All right, so there's a lot of explicit statements that are not so obvious or explicit in the text, but that I think if you want to say what we can safely acknowledge from the text is that Hebrews was written to a group of believers who had a very high understanding of the Old Testament. There's a lot of assumptions about the Old Testament in this text, and um, they had a high familiarity with the text, which is why I believe that they were Jewish Christians, and they were clearly suffering some level of tension with the culture, tension with um, governing authorities. And so we would, I think it makes sense to place that suffering in the context of Roman persecution under Nero, which puts the dating of the book between 64 and 69 AD. All right. So what I want to do is consider, first of all, why, why, we think, why I think it's Rome, why I think these are Christians who are living in Rome, why I think that date is appropriate, and then we'll look at a, just a couple of ideas from the setting itself before we conclude. Go, go with me to the back of the letter, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. All right, so it doesn't say Rome, but it does say Italy. And it says that they who are from Italy send you greetings. Now, the most natural way to read that is, is to suggest that this author, wherever he is, wherever he's writing from, maybe Asia Minor, somewhere there, he's writing to Rome, or he's writing to Italy, and he's saying, the people that have, have come this way from there send greetings to you. And that would make sense. They would be interested in who these they would know who he's talking about. Oh, we know there was a group of, of, uh, that were among us that has gone into that region of Asia Minor. Now, we also know that this would be consistent with how Christians were persecuted under Claudius. Um, look with, well, if you, you don't have to turn there with me because we'll stay in Hebrews for the most part, but I'm gonna jump back to eight, uh, Acts chapter 18, verse two. We read this, and he found a Jew, this is Paul, in Corinth. It says, after Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had com commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was the, uh, same, of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So the point is, that Aquila and Priscilla had left under Roman persecution. Right? All of the Jews were, were commanded to leave Rome in, under Claudius' rule, which would have been, happened in AD 49. Back to Hebrews, you have a description of the suffering that they experienced. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 30. 
4. The author writes, but recall the former days. So whenever he's writing, there's some prior days when, when this, what he's about to describe was taking place. So recall the former days. That's probably not just weeks prior, right? He's talking about years, maybe decades prior. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So you have some, some level of persecution that has happened in the former days. We would, I would suggest that most likely this is the same persecution that's happening under Claudius that sent Priscilla and Aquila to Corinth. And you have an escalation of the persecution taking place under Nero in the 60s. And as he gets toward the end, to ultimately destroying the, the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. All right, so Nero's persecution escalates what they experienced under Claudius, but those are the two primary episodes of persecution upon Jews and the Christian church during that time. Uh, Clement of Rome was uh, writing in AD, 49, or AD 94, so near the very end of the first century, and he knows this letter. He's one of the first early church fathers to reference this letter explicitly. Like there's several allusions to the letter of Hebrews where he writes, and it's clear that he, he knows it. In fact, it, it was so clear that some people have suggested Clement of Rome was the author of Hebrews because there's so many parallels with, with his own writing. Right? But he was from Rome, Clement of Rome. So it would make sense for someone to, from Rome, where the, the, which was the destination of the letter, as I'm proposing here, that, that someone in Rome would have uh, the most familiar, familiarity with this text. And the reason why I say house churches is because at the very end of the book of Romans, you have a listing of several believers who were gathering in homes. In fact, one of the homes they gathered in was Priscilla and Aquila. And so they gathered in their home, and, and Paul, in Romans, is, is greeting these Christians. He's saying, greet those who are in the house of uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Greet those who are uh, in this house with these believers. Greet these, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't want to read the whole text, but verses 3 through 15 of Romans chapter 16 is a description of the context of the Christian community in Rome. It was a group a large group or several multiple house churches uh, scattered throughout the region. All right, so there's no mention of any specific situation uh, in Hebrews, but there's a general sense of weariness. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 3 and 4 says, Consider him who endured from suffering such hostility against himself, speaking of Christ, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted <clears throat> to the point of shedding your blood. So there's a, an escalation of, of weariness, of, of growing tired of fighting against sin, fighting against sin from outside. There's a rising, very clearly a rising temptation of rebellion or of, of abandoning their faith. You'll have six different very serious warning passages in Hebrews. 
um, that many of you are familiar with, Hebrews chapter 3, uh, Hebrews 6, you'll see some very clear warnings not to go back, not to, to turn away from Christ. Right? And, and so the temptation seems to have been, if they were Jewish Christians, that they would, be, that they would depart back to a, a belief and a, and, and a practice of worship that, was less, that would have led to less suffering, right? that would have been a compromise with the culture, or would have been a compromise with their governing authorities. Right? It's clear that they experienced some escalating opposition, and they were tempted to relieve that the pressure that they were under. Thirdly, and the last point I would make about Rome is that many of the metaphors that we'll find in Hebrews are cultural metaphors that would relate to those in the Greco-Roman world. Um, there, that's not to say that that becomes the primary way he's communicating to them as if he's only using metaphors from their culture. He, he, the primary influence upon this letter is the Old Testament. And he references the Old Testament throughout. So, again, Jewish Christians in Rome make sense of all of this. Why the date? Well, that's because uh, I've already mentioned, right, the, the, the temple was destroyed. And one of the main arguments later on in Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10 are very, um, are descriptions of the sacrificial system as if it is ongoing, as if it's still happening. Right? So it talks about priests offering sacrifices daily. It talks about the fact that, that these things have been fulfilled in Christ, and yet they're still happening. There's an ongoing display of that kind of sacrificial system that he's arguing against. If the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, then it would seem to be a moot point that he's talking to people who are not at present actually doing any sacrificing because it did stop. Once the temple was destroyed, the sacrifices ceased. And so he's talking to them, uh, really not mentioning anything about the temple being destroyed. It would, seem, it would seem that his argument in chapters 8 through 10 would be pointless, um, uh, or at least would require some explanation for while we know the temple's been destroyed, we know that you are tempted to do these sacrifices or something like that. But instead, he could have also made the argument, if this was a, a later letter after the temple had been destroyed, he could have said something like, look, God has already fulfilled the sacrificial system. And so we shouldn't be longing for that. We should be celebrating what Christ has done. And that isn't, he does tell them to look to Christ. He does tell them to celebrate what Christ has done. But it's in the context of this temptation to go back to a sacrificial system that they would have had access to. Okay. So the likelihood is that this was written probably sometime after Paul's death. We know that the author acknowledges going with Timothy to visit them. And so uh, probably this was someone who was within the same missionary context as Paul and Timothy, um, even Priscilla and Aquila. And he is writing to suggest that, uh, or sorry, he's, he's, he's writing after Paul's death, which would have been around 64 AD, prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So that's as explicit or as specific as we can get, and even there we have to give some sort of opening for it to be maybe a little bit prior and possibly after, but again, I find it hard to believe the, the argument is as strong as it could be had it been written after AD 70. Lastly, 
this is a situation of intense political unrest. There's escalating persecution, as we've read. These are Jewish, Jewish Christians who are tempted to return to a former means of worship in order to avoid some level of suffering. And so the situation does have parallels with what we find in Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. This is a, a letter written to Gentiles, but it, what, were, what, was the, what were the Gentiles in Galatia suffering? It was a situation where Judaizers were saying, you need to be circumcised. You need to be circumcised in order to rightly have a relationship with God and his covenant community. Okay? And so that was the argument that the Galatians were, uh, were fighting. That was the heresy that Paul is arguing against. And here's how he concludes in this final warning. Galatians 6.12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The reason why they are making such a fuss about you being circumcised, Gentiles, is because they don't want to suffer. That's why. So the same thing is happening here in Hebrews, but it's ta he's talking to people who've already been circumcised. So that's not, the argument is not that they need to refrain from being circumcised like the Gentiles in Galatia were, but these are Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to their Old Testament sacrificial practices. And I mentioned already that the author assumes a great deal of familiarity with the Old Testament and that's important because when he quotes or even alludes to the Old Testament, a lot can be um, gleaned from those. It would be like if, if I were to just say, church, we can't be clanging cymbals. You would say, oh, that, that's familiar language. That sounds like 1 Corinthians 13. And that's the context in which Paul is exhorting the Corinthian church to show love and to be patient and kind, that he's defining what love sounds like and looks like, and he uses the clanging symbol illusion, or analogy to show the opposite of that love. Right? We're, we, can, we can have beautiful language, but if, it's, but if it's without love, we're just like clanging symbols. So if I just said, let's not be clanging symbols, many of you would understand all of that that I just described. You would know he's talking about love, he's talking about showing love, and not just expressing it in our words, but meaning it and living it out in our practice. So when he alludes to an Old when the author alludes to a, an Old Testament with just a few words, we can assume that if these people are very familiar with the Old Testament, that they have this whole context in view. All right, so there's a lot to understand about uh, his use of the Old Testament. William Lane puts it like this. He says, the intended audience was experiencing a crisis of faith and a failure of nerve. A crisis of faith and a failure of nerve. That is a good summary. And if that's the case, I think it's very interesting how he approaches their situation. Because he doesn't spur them on to fight the civil authorities. He doesn't give them any sense of immediate relief from cultural pressure. He doesn't say, hey, you suffer now and future generations will not suffer. Right? The, the pain you endure now is going to make things easier for the church down the road because things are going to get better. There's no sense of that. Now, on the, on the one hand, he, he doesn't call them to 
deconstruct every social institution, to burn everything down and start it up from a, a Christian worldview, nor does he exhort them to take dominion over the government. You know, Christ has won and he's on his throne and therefore we should all reign and rule with him on earth right now. He doesn't say that. Many people think he should. But they'd like to read the text in that way. No, instead he calls them to stand firm in the faith. He says that they should deepen their love for Christ. They should not be swayed by pressure to retreat to an expired practice. The author exhorts them by establishing the person and work of Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And this is consistent with the intentions of the authors of the New Testament. You don't see a ton of pushback against their audience. I mean, against their cultural context in the Word of God. His sermon makes no mention of the political military and social up uprisings that we know were taking place there. So certainly some wondered why he didn't address the social injustices. Why isn't he explicit about that? Others wished he were more political or culturally polemical. My question is, would we be satisfied with the narrow scope of his focus if he were preaching to us this morning and said nothing of COVID guidelines, said nothing of the oppressive government, said nothing of the immorality throughout the world. Would we be satisfied with a Christ-centered sermon? that increases our love for our Lord and calls us to live for him. Again, there's no encouragement here to rise up against political powers. The author doesn't mention fighting back. He does, however, recommend standing firm in their faith. And so if worldly and earthly power is our goal, then Hebrews will be sorely disappointing. But if your hope is in the spiritual reign of Christ, presently taking place in glory, then your faith will be richly rewarded. And it's in that context that he says to hold fast. Hold fast. Right? Hebrews is addressed to Christians who are tempted to accommodate their faith in order to relieve cultural pressure. You can imagine the upheaval of all that they ever knew and they were ever taught coming to a sudden halt in Christ for the shock that that would have been to them and the temptation to return what was familiar was obviously very real for them. But, but they couldn't deny the impact that the gospel had had. And so the recommendation that the author gives to them is to look to Christ. Consider him more fully. Meditate upon his finished and final work. Don't go back. Don't return to something that was still waiting for fulfillment. It's been satisfied by Christ. Rest in that. Endure to the end by continually looking to Jesus. 
So again, the goal is to hold fast. He'll say that explicitly in Hebrews 10, 23, to persevere, to press on to maturity, to hope. He says, you, you should be teachers by now, but you're still in need of milk. It, it's clear that they were an immature lot who needed to press on in their faith to grow and mature in godliness. And so he gives them several warnings against apostasy. And it's in those moments of great stress that hope actually becomes hopeful. It's when you're under pressure that hope is challenged and tested and does its work. Again, all of these exhortations, all of these considerations are overshadowed by this call to consider Christ. Consider Christ. They would only turn away from the shame as they turn to the glory of Christ. That's where their hearts should be focused. That's what their eyes should be looking toward. And so an author inspired by the Holy Spirit passionately encourages those who are intimidated by persecution to listen to the good news that Jesus is greater than everything else. And that's exactly what we need to hear as well. So I hope we are all looking forward to hearing that message week after week, the next year probably. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's remarkable as we consider the, the context of the original audience that we do relate in many ways to what they were going through on a lighter level for sure, but a level nonetheless of, of external pressure to conform to a view of the world that is incompatible with Scripture. To conform the way we interpret even your word and your revelation to a way that is consistent with postmodern philosophy. turning your objective truth into a subjective reality that's, that can be molded and shaped by the individual, a very man-centered faith and practice. Or that's the context we live in, and yet, while their persecution was very physical, there was a pressure to conform. There was a pressure to be like everyone else. And that temptation has been real in every generation since. And so this message is for us as well. And over and over again, the author turns our eyes to Christ. Turns our eyes to his satisfaction. The work that he has accomplished on the cross. And so, Lord, I pray that you would deepen our understanding of that truth and how it relates to everything else. Lord, how it changes the way we view everything else. Lord, this is the foundation from which we want to build everything else upon, is a right view of Christ. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response from 
Hymn 452, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. <laughs> <laughs> 